back to the Theology Podcast. This is C.R. Wiley, and I'm the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut. And we're glad to have you with us. You've come back and have been with us before, but if you're here for the first time and you're wondering, who are all these guys? I've introduced myself. Now it's time for the other guys to introduce themselves. So off to you, Tom. Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist. I teach both at a variety of places. And so that's enough for now. <laughs> that's right. Tom is on his fifth beer. <laughs> and this is not our first podcast. <laughs> Just to be clear. And I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of early modern European history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Okay. Now, we've all written a bunch of stuff, and we've talked about that stuff before. But I uh, wanted to bring to our listeners' attention uh, someone that they could read about and stuff that, and read the stuff that she's written, because she's going to be on our show here in the near future, and that's Rachel Fulton Brown from the University of Chicago. Now, Rachel is uh, a, an interesting person. She's a colorful person. Uh, she has a blog called The Fencing Bear, I believe it's called, and she became notorious in the world of medieval studies because she posted something entitled Three Cheers for White Men. <laughs> So that made her persona non grata in in higher academic, you know, higher higher academe, and generally speaking. But she is uh, 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 just kind of like, I don't know, who is it, Cruella Deville or something? As you know, in terms of you know her how she's perceived by the woke crowd. Anyways, uh, she's fortunately at the University of Chicago, which ostensibly has a very strong standard when it comes to free speech and you know when it with regard to professors. But that doesn't mean that she doesn't get a lot of grief and a lot of pressure, even at the University of Chicago from the woke crowd. But uh, she's got some interesting friends. I'm one of those friends, by the way. Uh, We met at the Touchstone Conference a few years back, and uh, she's great. And she brought along another friend to the conference, Milo uh, Yiannopoulos, the uh, notorious Milo. Anyways, I got to meet Milo at the conference, and uh, Milo was actually in the audience when I gave my address that uh, became the basis for my book, Household and War for the Cosmos. And he came up to me afterwards and told me how much he liked the talk. So he's a decent guy in my book. No matter what else you know, he's known for, in my book, he's a, he's a decent guy. <laughs> but, uh, so he's, but, but Rachel's going to be with us, not to talk about all that other stuff, although that would make a fun conversation. She's going to be talking to us about a class, an online class that she's conducting entitled The Forge of Tolkien. And the idea, of course, is that the forge is sort of Tolkien's creative process. And so she's, she's been doing a lot of work in this. And I've got a bone to pick with her and something to gripe with her about. I saw something about, you know, that she said regarding uh, Tom Bombadil and how Tom Bombadil was her second least favorite element in Lord of the Rings. I, if, I want to take her to task on that, if nothing else. <laughs> I'm curious what the least favorite was. But it that's was, was another... what she calls Bordor, the, t- the time where Sam and Frodo were ah. working their way through Mordor to get to Mount Doom. She calls that Bordor. That's her least favorite part <laughs> of Lord of the Rings. But anyways, it kind of gives you a little taste of what Rachel's like. I think you're going to enjoy uh, our time with her. She, we, she, we've got her on the schedule, and she'll be with us soon. Anyway, uh, we want uh, to give Glenn uh, you know, all the time he needs to, to introduce the subject of the day because it's Glenn's day. What are we talking about today, Glenn? Today we're going to talk about the liberal arts. All right. And we're going to look at the liberal arts actually 
from oh here's a shock from a historical perspective. Oh no, I never uh, would have thought I of that. I would not have imagined. <laughs> yeah, we, we, yeah. It, it, it turns out. I mean, you know, today when we talk about the liberal arts, we usually use it as interchangeably with the humanities. Right. Which, right. as a Renaissance historian, I will tell you, is an amazing blunder. But um, having having said that, our beers have arrived. Just so folks know, yeah. our beers are arrived. We've got a lovely waitress here passing out yeah. lovely drinks. We're very happy to receive them. <laughs> Headway IPA. Thank, thank you right, very so much. That's, that's Tom. Here's. He's got his seventh Headway right. of the day. <laughs> How did I go from five to seven? <laughs> had a few under the table. You know. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I'm tempted to say something about making headway here, but I, I, think, I think I will not. Um, okay, so the, the liberal arts. Liberal arts is actually a curriculum that originated in the uh, late antique period. Um, people like Boethius, uh, even Augustine, were, were important for sort of codifying this. Right. And then it was picked up in the schools in Ireland. Irish Christianity would be another great topic to do someday. But it was picked up by the schools in Ireland and was really promoted by a guy named Alcuin. Alcuin was a deacon at York who'd been trained at an Irish monastery, Clonmacnoise, one of my favorites. And... Um, then Alcuin was hired by Charlemagne to head up his educational program in the empire. So the liberal arts then became the foundation for European education. Now, when we talk about the liberal arts, technically, it is seven specific subjects. And if you're in a medieval university, for example, your undergrad degree is always going to be in the arts. So the seven subjects break into two categories. The first three are called the trivium. And the second three are the quadrivium. The trivium was always the center of education, and it's the one that gets the most airplay today. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, for example, wrote a book called The Lost Tools of Learning, in which she argued that the trivium actually ends up being a really good model psychologically for how kids learn in different stages of their life. The trivium are three subjects that are language-based subjects that are supposed to deal with subjective human experience. The first of them is grammar. The second is dialectic. Dialectic with an IC, not just dialect, dialectic. Um, It is more or less logic, but it's specifically logic done in dialogue form. Dialogue is the root word for dialectic. And then the last one is rhetoric, which is how you take what you learn in grammar and dialectic and use it uh, to present things in a a compelling way, an appealing way. Okay, and Dorothy Sayers argued, and this is the foundation for classical Christian schools, mm-hmm. um, Dorothy Sayers argued that this, this mirrors the psychological development of children and how they learn. At a young age, they love absolutely love memorizing things which would correspond to rhetoric. Then they get to a point where they turn argumentative. Mm-hmm. That's a dialectic. Mm-hmm. And then later on, you need, they need to learn how to, um, how to actually apply what they've learned in the world, and that's rhetoric. And you can use the same approach, according to Sears, in any subject area. That's all I'm going to say about the trivium. Look, before you jump into yeah. quadrivium, I just wanted to say a couple things. There, there's a way in which you can think about the trivium in a metaphysical way, but there's also a, a kind of implied political sort of way of life that 
you know, sort of being served by the, the trivium. If you live in a republic, for example, just being able to speak and move the, uh, the community is, uh, is, you know, really instrumental uh, to exercising leadership in the community. Yeah. So speaking well mm-hmm. is uh, important. But the, the, the metaphysical stuff, you know, that's a whole other subject and probably a topic for... Well, actually, we did talk about it but when we talked about Joseph Pieper. Yeah. So anyway, go back and listen to the Joseph Pieper episode. Right. Well, and, and just to, to um, reinforce that, rhetoric was considered the highest of the liberal arts, the most important of the liberal arts, all the way up until about the 13th century when it switched to dialectic. Mm-hmm. And that has to do with a whole bunch of things in medieval intellectual history that I don't think I want to go into right now. Um, in Italy, rhetoric remained the most important subject because Italy had a lot of law schools. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to be a lawyer, right. rhetoric matters a whole lot more than logic. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and still does. Okay. Now, <laughs> if the glove fits, me, <laughs> okay. So, so the trivium, the the, the trivium is uh, again language-based arts that deal with subjective human experience. The quadrivium are mathematical arts that deal with objective reality. Okay, mm. And like any approach to mathematics, it starts with arithmetic. That's the first of them. The second is, well, what's, what do you learn after you learn basic arithmetic? You learn geometry. And that's partly to teach logic, but other things as well. So you've got geometry there. The third one was applied geometry in a very real sense, which was astronomy. Yeah, that's always the one that catches people off guard. Yeah. Well, actually, the next one you're going to introduce is even more outlander. Yeah. Now, now, astronomy, it's worth noting in the Middle Ages, the words astronomy and astrology were used interchangeably. Right, right. And the reason for that is astrology was seen as just simply the practical applications of astronomy. They didn't use, officially at least, they didn't use astrology for fortune-telling. They used it for medicine and things like that to understand something of the makeup of the body so you know how to treat them properly. Okay, but anyway, that's, that's the third of them. The fourth, and really the climax of the quadrivium, is music. Yeah. So music, in, to the medieval mind, music was an objective art that dealt with, excuse me, a mathematical art that dealt with objective experience. Right. Right. Now, now, that's, now the one, uh, that's the one that, that uh, is a little bit difficult to understand, but let, we'll unpack that a bit. Yeah, well, I know where you're going with it, but we get intimations of it, even in our hymnody today, when we talk about the music of the spheres. Mm-hmm. And I, I imagine that's where you're going. Yeah, it's one of the places that we're heading. Okay. Okay. So why, why is music a mathematical art? Well, let's... The, the liberal arts tradition, again, started in the late antique period, the late Roman Empire, but it, it has roots going all the way back into ancient Greece. And we actually know quite a bit about how ancient Greek music sounded. Uh, there are places where there are things that we believe to be musical notations from ancient Greece. But along with that, they defined a whole bunch of, we would call them scales, they, called, they were known as modes in the period. Yeah. And the way the, they, the scales were defined um, think about a xylophone. The longest bar is the lowest note. Let's call that the first note of the scale. If you're going to do the rest of the scale, the way you do it 
is you do it on the basis of a fraction of the length of that bar. So the, the second note will be seven-eighths of the way, you know, seven-eighths of the length or something along those lines. And so we can actually create the sound of these various modes, these various scale patterns in ancient Greek music. That points out one of the reasons why music is a mathematical art. The notes are expressed in terms of fractions. Right. And once you go there, anything that can be defined in terms of fractions or ratios is music. Mm-hmm. So... This is where Pythagoras went with all this. That's yep, right. this is exactly yeah. where Pythagoras goes. So you have the, the pitches, but you also, of course, have rhythm, which is a matter of ratios of time. Yeah. But you also have things like the... Now, it, to the medieval mind, music, what we think of as music, was absolutely the lowest and least interesting form of music. Mm-hmm. Instrumental music, which is what I really like, was the lowest of the low. Mm-hmm. Vocal music at least adds some sort of intellectual content. Mm-hmm. But what gets interesting is where you go from there. It turns out that you also have what the medievals called the musica humana. That is to say, human music. Your respiration, which is done in rhythm. Your heartbeat, which is a rhythm. Um, your, your diurnal cycle, sleeping and awake, uh, awakening. The, the, all of these things can be expressed as rhythms or as fractions or as ratios of time, and therefore they are all music. Your body is governed by music. The, 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 your, your body's proper functioning is a function of human music. And then you go the next step that, that Chris pointed out already. When you look at the movements of planets and things like that, there is, well, a dance to it. Yeah. There are ratios and proportions and things like that, that that you use to express the motion of the planets. Geometry is part of this, but there's also these various types of, as I said, ratios and such that are used. And so you have the music of the spheres. So music becomes literally the glue that holds the universe together. Right. So music is something that is so much bigger to the medieval mind than it is to us. Right. And then there's the dimensions. I mean, mean, on on some levels, it's a kind of... Prior to this kind of reflect this this kind of reflection, you have a very deep connectedness to the sounds of the creation, um, puts it into a certain kind of reality connection. But you also have it very tied to this rhythmic cycle of seasons. Of course, four seasons. It gets yeah, written much later, right? but it's this, the same same notion that it tied to culture, created order, created life, and then this this kind of more abstract thinking about it. Um, the way in which this is very connected to time, temporality, the rhythms of creation, um, really show that this isn't some, just like the romantics, it's just merely, and they meant more than this too, but merely kind of this expression of, of what we feel. But well, rather, that was an attempt to connect us back with right. this, this connection to reality. Well, I'd like to think a little bit about that with you, Tom. Um, mm-hmm. But l- let me step back a minute and just kind of review the quadrivium. So there's a kind of building out. Mm-hmm. Right. So the most elemental or the sort of the sim- most simple uh, of the of the four, you have arithmetic. Right. 
Then you move out. Now, excuse me. Just just a quick point about arithmetic. Mm -hmm. Remember, this was developed in a period before Arabic numerals made it to Europe. And now the Arabs got Arabic Europe numerals from uh, Hinduism, uh, from India. So technically, we should probably call them Hindu numerals, but we call them Arabic numerals. And why is that important? Well, I would like you to consider the mathematical problem of, um, let's see, let me think of one. Uh, C-L-X-I-X divided <laughs> by X-I-I-I. <laughs> All right, where's, where's my 12-year-old yeah, when I need him? He can, he right. can do we it. we got to get the Roman numerals going here. <laughs> yeah, Roman numerals are incredibly, and Greek or Hebrew, all yeah. of them are the same. They're incredibly difficult to work with. Right. Ancient Greek mathematicians were told that if you study long, long enough and hard enough, eventually you might be able to do long division. <laughs> I mean, that's literally true because right. of the notation. It's that difficult. So arithmetic may seem really kind of elementary and all that, but it's actually quite a difficult thing when your notation's like that. And then when you look at somebody like Ptolemy, who came up with a structure of the universe which predicted the motions of planets and things like that, that stood really reasonably good for about a thousand years, he did it with Roman numerals. That is is amazing. I mean, this this is really incredibly difficult intellectual yeah. stuff that we're dealing with here. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't. I hope I didn't come across as being sort of dismissive of oh, arithmetic. Oh, oh but, certainly not, yeah. but, I, but I want people to understand, right, right. I want our listeners to understand that when we talk about arithmetic, there's a lot more complexity there. It's a lot more difficult than it sounds. Well, the next step is to geometry, which is dealing with the physical world. So there's a correspondence, or there's a, there's a connection that's made between, <coughs> pardon me, the, uh, the 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 arithmetic and physical reality, <coughs> pardon me, and how it's represented mathematically, and then we move out from that to another level uh, in which we're talking about uh, astronomy. Well, actually, let, let's back up on geometry. Again, geometry is the way we use it in school. They also used it this way there. It teaches you logic. Right. Sure. You use um, all your geometric theorems and things like that. There is a logical step to prove them, yeah. and so geometry is actually a tool that goes beyond just simply spatial issues, which are important. Mm-hmm. But it goes beyond that into helping develop the mind as well with, through through uh, logical. But, but I think it also reflects works. a kind of sort of the substratum of reality. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is what Pythagoras was getting at that there's right. that reality is kind of mathematically uh, sort of. Uh, it lends itself to mathematical language. Right. And if you look at particularly the British tradition in, um, uh, in scholasticism, uh, going back to the unfortunately named Robert Grosstest, Grosstest translates roughly to fathead, um, he, he believed that mathematics was the language of the universe, and he always analyzed the physical world in terms of mathematics. Yeah, and which gets, which is a whole other conversation in terms of how we think about mathematics and and its sort of ability to analyze the surfaces versus the interiors of things. But anyway, that's a it's a it's something I'm thinking a lot about, right? Because I'm actually working on a chapter in my Bombadil book that gets into that kind of stuff. And but, and however, it's it's challenged today as something. Merely a social construct. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Like we don't have an insight into it, the that's, physical that's, structure that's of, the, right. of the universe. <laughs> 
So, so we've got this kind of, but I, the thing I'm getting at is sort of this building out. Yes. So yes. we get to the, what we think is the largest category, which is astronomy. But we're, we, we learn is that there's actually something beyond that. Right. Which is music. And mu- music, like I said, it is the glue that holds the universe together. It is, in the cosmic dance, music is the thing that determines where the planets go. Now, what's happened in the modern era, and this is what I want to get to, mm-hmm. I'd like to get your thoughts, because just, so just so our listeners know or remember, Tom's first degree was in music. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So, and it used math. He had six strings on his guitar. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I did have a 12-string. <laughs> but, but kind of stepping back a little bit and thinking about the, the, the sort of the modern shift, one of the things that we sort of associate with, with romanticism is a, a turn to the subject to the yeah. subject. Yeah. So, you know, what made Beethoven so controversial, you know, was that he actually defied some classical, you know, uh, sort of sort of patterns yeah. for uh, uh, thinking about and, and, and appreciating music. So, like when we think about the Jupiter Symphony with Mozart, you know, we've got something that could be uh, the fullest expression of what you just described, Glenn. This mm-hmm. is sort of this marvelously sort of uh, uh, capacious and uh, and and uh, mathematically profound symphonic work. Well, if if you really want to see math, look at Bach. Yeah. Okay. Anything that Bach does is just incredibly yeah. intricate mathematically. And and most of the, I mean, most of the the, the you know the, the chord harmonies, um, the ways scales and chords go together, um, the way in which tensions. What is a tension? Well, tension is something you a, a note you add to otherwise three notes that work harmoniously together. Um, and you add a little tension, but the thing is, is that most of these figures, and this sort of answers your question, most of these figures that move from sort of classical forms of music or, or Bach to add a little more of their own expression, they still work strongly within form. Right, right. They just added a little tension. That tension worked and is interesting, just like a jazz player. It's interesting when it doesn't go too far out of its form. Now, some people love the stuff that goes really far out of the form, but that's because they love the whole notion of kind of somehow disrupting the whole right, whole right. thing. Um, but that, that there's something else going on, I think, in the, in uh, in that probably spiritually as much as anything right, else. Right, right. Um, but but um, but what allows for all of those relationships, whether it's in the in the more you know the, the more you know the beautiful ways I think in which Bach and these these other composers did it, and some of the ways in which some of these players, whether they were romantics or or some of the jazz players, can do it, is this constant pulling back of sound to resolution that can be as much done as if you just did it mathematically, as if you had your your instrument in front of you. Yep. You can do it with just just writing it writing it out mathematically. Right, right. Yeah, and let, let me throw in another thought here. Judaism and Christianity are almost unique among world religions in how, I think they may be unique, in terms of the place of music within them. Yeah, right. And when you look at particularly the Western musical tradition, what you see is in the music, creation, fall, and redemption. It starts with consonants, it moves to tension, moves to resolution. Mm-hmm. 
um, you are seeing mirrors of the gospel in the music. Mm-hmm. I mean, not, not. Right. I mean, just in terms of the of the the basic structure. Now, if you compare this, I was in Mongolia a few years ago, <laughs> in 2013, and we went to a Tibetan Buddhist temple in Ulaanbaatar. Most people don't know this, but Tibetan Buddhism is as much Mongolian as it is Tibetan. As a matter of fact, the word Dalai, as in Dalai Lama, is a Tibetan, is a, excuse me, a Mongol word. Mm, I didn't realize that. Yeah, it means ocean. Oh, because really? the first Dalai Lama had a Tibetan name that meant ocean. Oh, mm. how about that? So, in any event, uh, we were there, and they, the, there were a bunch of the monks who were, you know, we were walking through. A bunch of the monks were in a room chanting. And um, then, well, to quote one of the guys in our group, the praise band opened up. Um, and, and what you got was this incredibly loud, cacophonous blast of various kinds of trumpets. No attempt at, at, at any kind of harmony or anything like that, yeah. or even any attention paid to what notes were coming out, yeah. combined with random fast patterns on percussion. And that was it. Just huh. this blast of sound, and then it stopped, and they continued chanting, and then there was this other blast. Yeah. That's not... Like, you know, no, yeah. one, of, one of my friends in, is a, uh, Ken Myers from Mars Hill Audio, and he, he's, he's noted that polyphony mm-hmm. is one of the things that characterizes the Christian contribution to music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This idea of yeah. harmonies, you know, and... The adding of voices. The adding of voices and the, and the weaving together. Yeah. In a, into a kind of tapestry of sound. Yeah, that's, that's a marvelous contrast. And, and when you hear, you know, even when you think about, a, say, a, a cantor in a, in a synagogue, there's a, or some forms of early Gregorian chant, there's a, just a kind of almost um, monotonous repetition yeah, yeah. Yeah, to it. Yeah, and, and it's sort of, yeah, the, the different layers, I think, from that, they, they, they build on it. But one of the things, yeah, you do see. Now, I mean, a curious question is, is that look at the aesthetic reach that, for example, Christianity brought to kind of music itself, where, where especially impacted the, you know, Western civilization. Um, or just, the, you know, in the high development of it from the humanities as well. I mean, you're dealing with things of sophistication. Um, oftentimes you need virtuosity to play. Um, or with the voice, but you're dealing with mathematical sophistication that is matched by aesthetic. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can hear something, you would know nothing of the mathematical form to it um, as a listener who detached from that side of it. You just hear something incredibly beautiful, and yet this mathematical form was allowed to create and, and permeate that dimension of reality and bring that into a communal sphere where others can actually enjoy it and have an antenna for it. This kind of almost, you know, gets into that whole question of what portal is almost being opened up aesthetically by this 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 kind of humanistic um, or Christian uh, humanism or, 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 you know, education. I mean, what you're doing is entering into realms of truth, beauty, and goodness that are unpacking something that's there. Right. And, and, you know, it, 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 when you were talking about beauty and math, I'm struck yeah. by the fact that the people I know who are genuine geniuses in physics talk about the elegance and beauty of equations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you don't hear them. Yeah. And I look at them and I say, you know, I don't even know what half those symbols mean. Yeah. But, but for 
these people, what they are seeing there is a kind of beauty and elegance and all of that kind of thing in the form. Yeah. I have to hear it. Yeah, yeah. Well, this brings to mind, for me anyway, kind of the modern turn uh, to the surface and how mathematics is uh, used to control and to apprehend sort of the surfaces of things, but is no longer sort of uh, tied into the purposes of them, sort of their inner realities. Whereas the the ancient view or the classical view very much uh, is able to do that. Yeah, well, think, okay, let's go back to the idea of the music of the spheres. I keep using the metaphor of dance. The way they believed the universe was structured, you have the earth at the center, there's a crystalline sphere around the earth that has the moon on it. Then there are crystalline spheres for all the other planets. Notice I used the word other there. Hmm. Because in terms of visual astronomy, the moon is a planet, the sun is a planet. Okay, So you have, the, you have a series of these crystalline spheres, like nesting like Russian dolls, um, going out until finally you get to the sphere of the fixed stars. That's the last of the spheres. And beyond that is the realm of God. The sphere of the fixed stars rotates at incredible rate around in 24 hours. You can see it rotating if you watch the stars surrounding the North Star right. overnight. Right. Okay. So the turning of that sphere, that sphere's turning causes the motion of the next sphere in, which causes the motion of the next sphere in, which causes the motion of the next sphere in until you finally get to the, to the moon. What moves the first sphere? What moves that, uh, that outermost sphere of the stars? It moves out of love of God, according to the medieval theologians. So the love of God, the the stars move out of love of God. And all of the other planets respond to this in this great, literally cosmic dance that's governed by music. Yeah, it's it, it, the telos, uh, the, the movement of love, the, the, the way in which love is what moves everything and everything is being pulled towards it is very much the, the development of that. Yeah, and music music at, at the heart of it. But it's interesting that Christianity, I mean, you're talking about, okay, the, you know, the heavenly hosts, right? Your invitation into the hosts singing to the eternal matched by this profound exploration into the nature of reality allow the church and especially in Christendom to be able to capture certain kinds of sounds and reach certain kinds of levels that almost gave you a ear into the eternal, I would argue. And, well, yeah. and if you think about the music of the spheres, I can't prove this, but I suspect that it is that kind of reflection that creates medieval polyphony. Mm. Yeah, that, I, that, that makes sense. That just as each of the planets does its own motion in response and in harmony with everything else, yeah. so we can have more than one line going that works together in, in perfect harmony with everything else. Yeah. yeah. You know, this, this takes me in a couple of directions. One of those directions is the question is, uh, it sometimes comes up uh, when you're talking about Christian education. Is there such a thing as Christian mathematics? And then that's, you know, presented as a kind of non sequitur, a kind of, well, of course there is no such thing as Christian mathematics because mathematics doesn't need any sort of Christian grounding for everyone to understand its 
And then you get people telling you two plus two is four is uh, an example of white supremacy. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Because if it's not grounded in something, it's it finds yeah. this sort of grounding in some kind of uh, absurd I mean, thing. What, what but, Christianity affirms is the fact that we have an ordered universe that is grounded in the 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 in the God who is the eternal Logos that has form, has order, has shape, and is oriented and permeated by it and to it. So to say that it's there is already to say something Christianity affirms. To deny it's there is already to step into territory which Christianity would have take issue with. Now other, other, other worldviews um, are aware of the, the fact that mathematics and reality have a strong connection right. um, and and prior to Christianity entering the scene there was much development that brought um, that, that developed the, the you know discovered and developed what was there in the created order not in its full light I mean Christianity and even Christians don't understand it in its full light they just have access to the one that is um, right. the one that brings it there but th- this is nothing this is nothing remove I mean yeah the, you had the kind of you know cosmic ordering in, in a lot of the philo- philosophies um, but when when Christianity came on the scene the eternal logos, um, allowed for a deepening and a profundity into that insight, that, which gave us a lot of what I would say was what I keep saying, an ear into, into truth, beauty, and goodness that otherwise would not have been um, as profound had it not, had it not been um, qualified by what Christianity brought into it. Well, what Christianity does is it allows you to, or helps you see or sound the uh, meaningful That's right. sort of dimensions of, of, of this mathematical harmony that we, that we yeah. have around us. If you lose that, then mathematics becomes merely a matter of uh, a- a- apprehending the surfaces yeah. of things, predicting the movements of things, yeah. uh, but it doesn't give you any kind of meaningful insight into the purposes of things. This is what I was getting yeah. at with kind of surfaces versus interiors. Yeah, yeah. The interiors uh, in the is this sort of earlier vision are part of the dance. They're right. part of everything because there are purposes that are that are that are affirmed in this vision that you've given us. So, like when we get back to polyphony, we get back to this whole idea of movement. The you know the outer sphere being uh, propelled not by a force being exerted upon it from the outside pushing, but by a force drawing in or drawing towards God. <laughs> so that, there's a tremendously significant difference between those two things. Well, yeah, and I'm going to bring in uh, transcendence here. Okay. <laughs> One of Tom's favorite subjects. <laughs> um, there's a theologian in, in our area called John Rankin. Uh, and John is fond... John, when you talk to John, everything... <laughs> is about Genesis. <laughs> Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Gotcha. And, you know, he's really got a lot of good things to say, but he pointed out that the, the Hebrew, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, right. um, is the only place in all of philosophy that expresses the idea of God beyond, being beyond space, time, and number. Oh, Interesting. You know, so the transcendence of God, we think of him being beyond space and time. Right. But he's also beyond number. Interesting. Yahweh 
the, the, the covenant name of God is a singular. Elohim is plural. And whenever Elohim is used for God, it's used in other contexts as well. Whenever it's used of God, it comes with a singular verb. Uh-huh. So you've got a plural noun with a singular verb. It's the only place that it happens. Interesting. So it, 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 the concept of number simply doesn't apply to a God who exists as Trinity. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, and, and so that... So what this points to is the idea that mathematics, the quadrivium, music, mm. all of these kinds of things, is part of the created order. Yeah. yeah. It is something that, that God transcends even that. And then along with that, it's worth noting that as part of the created order, as we've already pointed out, the heavenly hosts, the angels, the archangels, the mm. cherubim and seraphim, sing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you notice that I mean, in, in, in a richly in the in the the Bible, you have the Song of Moses, the worship of of David. The, the longest the, book of the Bible is a book of songs. Songs, yeah, and then yes. you have the the continuous singing of of you know the the, the hierarchy um, yeah. into eternity, and it, it's filled. And so here you have is this this um, very intimate form of relation and communion. Um, that yet, as we explore that intimacy that the, the you know that we're given from Christianity uh, of communion, we also see that it's also connected to the whole um, way in which the created order um, is oriented towards um, the eternal. And so, what you have there is this this medium of creation that has a connection to the form beauty and order of all things and yet it has its final enrichment in um, communing with God. What what this brings to mind is uh, Tolkien's uh, creation story, Mm -hmm. the music of the Anur. Yeah. Or Narnia. Yeah, we forget Narnia. Narnia yeah, too. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Aslan got, sang Narnia into existence. Yeah, the magician's nephew. That and episode, there right? is. It is not an accident <laughs> that Lewis used music as the means of creation, or Tolkien, for that matter, because of this notion of music as the thing that governs the motion of the planets. It's the thing that governs human life, our own health, and everything else. Everything in the universe right. is governed by music. When we think about the music of the Anur. You know, it's it's a harmony, uh, and when dissonance is introduced by Melkor, then we have death. And no, not not at first. When Melkor introduces dissonance the first time, Eru or Iluvatar just sort of smiles and moves his hand, and it all resolves. The dissonance gets resolved. Right. It's only when he does it the second time that you've got the problems. Yeah, and, and then the, the, the solution appears to be the children of Iluvatar. First mm-hmm. the elves and then men. And what... Uh, well, anyway, you should read it if you haven't read it already, podcast listener. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's, it's right at the beginning of the Silmarillion for those of you who might not be familiar. Yeah, it's one, right. yeah, it's one right. of the most beautiful, I think, sections of that writing. Yeah, but yeah. the idea is that through the music, we have a, an instantiation. We have a creation. And uh, so... Music, in some sense, uh, is uh, the thing that comes first, and then the, the instantiation follows. Right. Yeah. But it's still a created thing. In other words, the mm-hmm. the the Anur are are making the music, and then the music makes the world. And it's, that's worth thinking about. Um, we're not talking about scripture here, but but there are some interesting parallels. Yeah. Yeah, and and Tolkien. 
Tolkien, it is so easy to underestimate the guy if you don't really pay attention to him. Right, right. Uh, he, he is, he's a brilliant writer, uh, wrote a, a great adventure story, as we said before, but there is so much philosophy and theology embedded deeply into the world that he right. created yeah, right. that, you know, the, it's one of these things where you almost feel like the more you sink into it, the deeper it gets. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think partly yeah. that's because he he was self-consciously tapping into things that were present and deep already, but that surrounded him and were of great, I think, a moment for him and interest to him. Um, it wasn't as though he just draw, drew, made it up all out of his head. He was drawing on a lot of stuff. He gets into that in uh, yeah. on fairy stories when he talks about the soup of story. Yeah, mm-hmm. that there's something bubbling away, like one of those one of those soups that you keep adding things to and you never turn off I don't know what that's called <laughs> but the idea is that you know there's there's like there's like uh, stews and soups that have been simmering for like hundreds of years <laughs> yep, yeah. that, that's called the health department shutting you down <laughs> um, but yeah yeah the uh, and one of the, I mean he was he was, his imagination was immersed in in ways in which story and culture and the rhythms of culture and, and all of that were connected, and, and song is right at the, right, the, the, right. the heart of that. I mean, one of the interesting things this raises, and, and um, you know, it, it's for people who kind of have a taste for um, some of the more, I think, profound works of classical music, for example, or, or Christian, you know, hymnody or... Or, or great classical works that drew. I mean, you look at, at Bach and, and um, Handel and, and other other figures. But then you look at, you know, okay, music isn't only about, um, you know, penetrating that that level of thing. Although I, I'm kind of, I gravitate. I remember David Steinmetz once at, at, during my years at Duke said, if I could only hear music at church in the morning, I'd be very content, you know. <laughs> it's just, uh-huh. right. It was see, seeing the church. And then there, there is this kind of, um, there is this kind of way in which, um, you know, a lot of people of popular culture, they cannot connect with that sort of thing at all. Right. And I'm not saying that, you know, I, I don't think that's a good thing. But, um, but one of the things is music does have this capacity to reach a whole different range of, of the human person um, and connects to all kinds of things about our appetites and, and everything else. And so you're dealing with something, I think, you know, um, the, the realm of the psychological and the affective. And I think, uh, of course, the romantic period influence that side of things to the point that, that a lot of times we're turned away from the mathematical and the kind of truth, beauty, and goodness to the way in which uh, music penetrates a more, um, you, know, you know, maybe even a base set of desires. Um, and so people are satisfied with, with you know, kind of um, something that really doesn't tap into some of the riches of even the created order, much less the, the, the deeper beauties those things are participants in. Well, this gets to it brings to my mind that you know the purpose of great art yeah. is it merely to express you know sort of the state of things in your own experience, or should it expand those things? You know, it should yeah. should art uh, be uncomfortable maybe at first, like when you're learning how to uh, you know work out in a in a in a gym. You know, mm-hmm. it's an uncomfortable experience to. You know, uh, try to bench press for the first time. 
Yeah. You know, and then the next day you've got pain, and you're like, why would I want to do this? Why should I go back? You know. Yeah, yeah. But there's a sense in which your capacity to lift weight uh, grows with the exercise and uh, your ability to endure. You know, you know, sort of your 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 tolerance for pain. But the the pain obviously isn't the point. The pain is just sort of something you're passing through to get to a different kind of mode of life or way of experiencing life or living. Now, when we think about art, when we think about music, uh, is music merely uh, a way of exciting sort of uh, base sort of uh, passions or, or appetites, exciting them or expressing them, or can it have a, a role in moving us into parts of ourselves, recesses of ourselves, mm-hmm. that we never would get into if it were not for some encouragement, something that's kind of opening things up to us? I remember when I, when I read uh, uh, Montaigne for the first time, I was, at, I was at Harvard and we were working through you know, all of his essays. And I could actually almost feel my <laughs> consciousness expanding <laughs> as I was working through his essays. I was like, I'm, I'm learning to sort of apprehend and think in ways yeah. I, I didn't realize I was capable of. Yeah, sure. But it was because Montaigne, in a very subjective way, if you've read yeah. any of his essays, yeah, yeah. you know what I'm getting at. Yeah. But, but he was moving me out of my sort of comfortable way of thinking and being yeah, yeah. and helping me experience... Uh, what it could be, how a human could live that I just didn't know it was, you know, was was possible. Yeah. Or I just, I, I just didn't have any way of imagining that. But I was doing it kind of vicariously through his essays. But I think when we get when we talk about music, you know, we have a sense in which music is always supposed to be kind of saccharine or sweet in the sense that it's just immediately mm-hmm. accessible and, and uh, appeals to us like mm-hmm. sugar candy does. You know, yeah. whereas you know more substantive stuff, uh, something that can be challenging. Let me give you kind of a silly example of this. I remember the first time I I had sushi. (laughs) I had a friend in college who's a Korean guy, and he said, let me take you out for sushi. And I had no idea that sushi had something called wasabi in it. So I thought the big thing that I would have to sort sort of steal myself for was raw fish. And then I and I ate my first piece of sushi, and I realized I was completely missing yep. the magic of sushi. <laughs> we we had a friend who, on the first time she uh, she tried sushi, had uh, somebody tell her that that uh, that green thing there was avocado, and she should just pop it in her mouth. <laughs> well, that was kind of that was kind of like my experience. I, so I, so the the le- the least sort of challenging thing about my my first encounter with sushi was the raw fish. Right. The most challenging thing was the wasabi. wasabi. <laughs> but uh, later on, years later, I remember I, I can still re- I can still recall I was in I was in Pennsylvania. We were in, in Pennsylvania Dutch country, Lancaster County kind of thing. We had a bunch of us had stopped at a restaurant, and they had this uh, you know roast beef sandwich, and you could have horseradish with it mm-hmm. and suddenly out of nowhere this sort of latent desire for that burning sensation <laughs> that I had experienced that night years before rose to the surface and I said load it with horseradish <laughs> and ever since you know I, I've, I've been in a, a great aficionado of uh, not only sushi and wasabi but horseradish in general we'll but, pray for you <laughs> <laughs> but, but what, what I'm getting at is that is that I was kind of baptized into the fire of wasabi and only later came to say, I want that experience again. If I had not been 
kind of like duped, <laughs> drawn into this experience unaware, I don't think I ever would have come back later and said, I'm ready, my, my palate has matured, I'm ready for, for something, you know, yeah. something, something challenging like that. Yeah. But I think music can do that too. You know, you know what, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is that there are forms of music that those who immerse themselves in the world of music uh, are able to appreciate that a, that a person like me, coming, you know, looking on the outside, who just wants sugar water all day long, can't apprehend or appreciate. But when you when you've actually gotten to that level, when your palate has developed, Four. you almost are, you're, you almost find the old sugar water uh, kind of uh, galling or, or uh, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, and and along with that, the more you actually understand about music it changes the way you perceive what you hear. I did yeah. a lot with music when I was, was younger, and I listen to music differently yeah. than people who haven't had musical training. Right, right. Um, it's just like, you know, I used to, I, I mentioned, I think, in a previous program, I used to do martial arts. I used to be a martial arts instructor, and I watch fight choreography differently <laughs> than yeah, other people yeah. do. I mean, right, it's just, right. you know, it's just what you're used to, what you're experienced but, with, what you understand changes the way you understand and appreciate what you're encountering. But one of the things I think unique about music, I'm not saying other arts and other things don't have this, but I think more people have a tendency to be able to share it, is it has a participatory dimension to it. It can pull you, you know, Socrates' famous line, you know, even the most ruthless of human beings drops their guard to a beautiful piece of music. And this way that that music has this capacity while on the one hand it can be completely tied to the orders of the mathematical order and and almost logical and rational order it can even with that kind of rigorous tie to that be aesthetic as any kind of expressive um, you know um, kind of art and it has this way of really bringing those together um, that I think is, you know, I mean, it's similar to great technique and art and being able to capture. Yeah, and, and so we're back to the transcendentals, the good, the true, well, and the beautiful. Well, this is, this is kind yeah. of, and, and I do think, because music is something that touches, again, on all different levels, there are way, different ways of that relation, and I, I do think it's, it's a missing art in the theological world to evaluate music from the, this very rich dimension. It's transcendental dimensions, um, it's some of its you know, creaturely you know, gift to enjoy, um, but then also some of its, uh, the, the ways in which that can become vice because it taps into lower appetites that feed dispositions that don't orient us towards truth and goodness, but you know, gratification. gratification. But ultimately, I think though that's true of any kind of art. Yes, yeah, you know, sure. and any kind of good art has the potential, well, it's, it's, we're going to talk about the great divorce eventually. Yeah. Lewis's point that the yeah. greatest virtues become the greatest vices when yeah. they go wrong. That's right. You know, is really illustrated here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah good stuff. I guess, uh, you know, when you, when you were talking about uh, kind of uh, more, I don't know, bass or fallen yeah. expressions of music, I brought to mind uh, Plato's uh, Republic and how he analyzes music and Rhythms, yeah. you know, he's he's got descriptions of rhythms, uh, and he's got names for rhythms, but I don't know, you know, exactly what he was referring to. But I kind of have a sense of what he was getting at. Yeah, yeah. I think that you know some of the rhythms that he was that he condemned, I think, have a kind of sexual kind of uh, 
dynamic to them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he was concerned with uh, the kind of the degradation of the moral but see, sort of public order. But that, that right there is one of those points I'm trying to get into is there's this fascinating way in which the rhythmic, the sensual, and the, the musical can... It, it, it pen, because it's a transcendental, has the capacity to penetrate imminently almost every aspect of, of reality, right. and so and and so yeah, there are these ways, and then there are also some. I mean, differing cultures and nations have different you know different traditions of of the way in which rhythm and music and, and harmony work, and yet you see these more sophisticated forms and Christianity to tie into them. Not sophisticated in the sense that there aren't other sophisticated kinds of music, but I'm talking tied to the mathematical and, and a certain rigor of, of the ordered universe. Um, but what you do is you see these things influence each other, and then they get called, you know, they almost get caught up into a way of developing a, a deeper kind of... I mean, you'll, you'll have one sound here influence a culture here, and it'll be brought up into that, a, a kind of rich, developed kind of music. Then you'll have one sound here enter this picture. Then you'll have a sound here, and then you, it, it's just a phenomenal well, kind this, of medium. This, this yeah. is something, you know, maybe this is an old man complaint, you know. Yeah, yeah. But it strikes me, anyway, that popular music, yeah. which is mass music, you know, yeah. for a mass audience, is not what it used to be. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I, I, observationally, the levels of complexity have just really shrunk. Yeah. 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 You, know, you listen to music. I mean, yeah, I'm one of those old guys too. Right. But yeah. but you, you listen to music from the '70s or something right. like that. What you see are layers. Yeah. Right. You see multiple layers of, of melodies, counter melodies, yeah. uh, rhythms, harmonies, things like that. You don't get that in pop music now. Yeah, and which makes me wonder a couple of things. One is is. Uh, you know, it's kind of chicken and egg. Uh, is it is it because uh, people aren't expecting it or can't receive it because they're just not capable of you know receiving it, or is it just simply that we're not capable of producing it, you know, uh, the way we used to? Now, or to, to, because the business is such that it doesn't pay to spend that much time and effort to craft art like that. Well, I think that's another dynamic, but I also wonder about the training of, of you know of the people who are yeah. pr- producing it. You know, I, it seems to me that many of the say pop artists of the say '60s and '70s were classically trained. These were these were people that you know, if you listen to the Beatles, I'm not saying the Beatles are the highest form of, pl- of p- popular music, but you can you but you can take a Beatles tune and break it up you generally into three movements where you have kind of a variation on a theme with each movement, and there's a different kind of a, a tone or mood that's a, that is uh, evoked uh, in that movement. And some of this stuff, clearly, at least in my mind, has a, has a classical influence. Um, so there's that kind of stuff going on. Like, I, my wife and I will occasionally, uh, essentially right now, we don't watch any any Netflix or even any television, it's all YouTube anymore. <laughs> but, but occasionally, you know, we'll come across, like, the greatest hits of 1975. Yeah. <laughs> and there'll be a hundred songs, and they'll just play a snippet of each song. But what's amazing is, like, when you get, when you start it with, like, a number 100 in, in the countdown, you'll say, that was number 100? That's a hit! That, that's, a, that's a song that I will never forget. In other words, there's something about the melodic elements in it, something about the voices that you just say, that's going to live for a long, long time. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think that 
even younger people uh, recognize this. This isn't something well, that, that's unusual. It's sort of yeah. the province of old dudes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you, you look at the, the thing that I go to is something like uh, Blinded by the Light, Manfred Mann. Uh-huh. The number of layers of things that are going on as you're going through that song is astounding. I was thinking of Springsteen's version, but I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, since, since Tom, you're 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 the, the the trained musician here. You're the you're the educated musician. What's your take on this this whole process? What's what's happened? Well, I think there's a, there's a lot. I mean, I mean, they go it goes with a lot of the different changes we've talked about with ideas. Um, I mean, on one level, I do think, I mean, Glenn's point, that everything has sort of become the lowest common denominator. And we play to the most basic, like everything else. It, it, it tries to hit the most immediate appetite. It's not interested in the reformation of appetites or the reorienting, other than directing them towards more of the same because it's able to produce it easily and sell something very easily. So, sadly, the, uh, you know... Now, now I, I'm always profounded by, I guess how many people find that kind of music compelling. I mean, yeah, I'll drive right. down the road, I hear it everywhere, and yeah. people spend their whole days listening to it. Yeah. I'm thinking, what, what's going on in that soul situation? Right. Um, and I always say, I just kind of the, 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 you know, the odd fish, you know, am I, am I like sort of the, the bass in a goldfish tank? <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think so. I've, I've tried to have an antenna for certain well, things. I'm Tom, willing to... Just don't be coy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I want to be educated into certain things, but I, in some cases I, I, I have not lost that conviction. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think, you know, um, I mean, if you're talking Western culture, the, the key moves that have changed have matched themselves on the level of what we get in terms of art and everything else. Nihilistic. Um, immediate gratification geared towards the self-indulgent. Um, I mean, listen to the lyrics. Right, right. I mean, it, it's either about, you know, in, in, I mean, it, it really, it's, it's becoming increasingly more bass and more bass, the popular music. Right. Um, to the point, it's, it's, you know, it's, and, and why? You'd think at, at a point of historical sophistication we should have arrived at by now, we are returning to the most I mean, far more bass than, you know, some of the symbols of the ancient world, which at least had vitality right. and, 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 you know, longevity tied to them. I mean, it, it, it's troubling. Um, but I think there has just, you know, there was a rip in the veil. Um, the transcendent is pushed out. The utilitarian and the, and the immediate gratificatory came in. And so it's not to say that there aren't moments when there is something catchy or there's something that, that kind of lifts the spirit or serves different purposes um, but a lot of times it, it just really has not developed beyond this, this easily sellable easily manufacturable um, and plays just to the I mean I noticed the other day my, my, uh, I was watching a news program with my wife and it was a commercial the jingles on the commercial are terrible yeah. <laughs> I mean, even old. I mean, I'm not just being, you know, I'm not so old. I mean, it's, it's just something happened. And, and look, even if you go back, and I'm not trying to praise some of these bands, but you go back to old rock and roll, Led Zeppelin, for example, who I think, no, it's not in the background now. But anyway, but they actually <laughs> well, went. I thought I heard Immigrant Song a minute that's ago. That's right. But here's a group who went and actually read Hobbit, wrote on it, right? right, right. Read these lures and, and a Welsh mythology they love, but they studied the folk traditions musically of the cultures that they did. They implemented into new forms. 
Um, but they carried some of that with them. But I, I don't see so much attachment to any kind of traditions of music um, so much. Yeah. And so I do think there's a missing element there, too. Yeah, a lot of the stuff is electronically driven. You know, you've got, well, uh, all this stuff that's going on with, you know, generated rhythms, it's all been pre-programmed. You just hit the button and you've got the beat. And, and they steal it from someone else and then they right. just put put it in a new context. You know, they, they there's a lot of that. So you'll hear a rhythm that you knew years ago, but it's just been stolen. Right. And then, you know, a put a, you know. Maybe a little, like, little yeah. wrinkle or something, yeah. Well, anyway, we should probably uh, begin to, to draw this into... Uh, no, how some, we ended some, up. Yeah, some, <laughs> some, some kind of close, yeah. So, uh, Glenn, uh, <laughs> anything else you want to talk about or, or, or say as we wrap it up? Well, I, I guess what I want to do uh, is just sort of go back to the, the idea of uh, music as, as mathematics, as... Um, something that ties so much of the universe and our own lives together, those kinds of things. This profound sense that they had of the integrated nature of all things under God. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. yeah that's you a know, beautiful thought. Look, looking at it that way, that, that, you know, things that we just think of as, you know, something to listen to or dance to or relax to or to get us riled up or whatever, they saw beyond that to something that literally ties the entire universe together under God. Yeah, yeah. And I think that connected all these other things together as right. well. That's why your folk music yeah. locally had, it could reference something larger because it was connected to that. And then uh, I think maybe a good answer to Chris's question earlier, and, and I'll end with this. Uh, Peter Gay wrote a great book called Modernity um, or Modernism, The Lure of Heresy. And he said the whole premise of the whole thing is make it new, make it new, yeah, make right, it new. Right. That's what um, means. Yeah. And, and so I, I do get the point of contributing um, your gift to something. But that's very different than cut it off from the rest and try to start always at the beginning as if you're the reference point. Because I think if, if you want to say where did everything go wrong, I think that's a big part okay. of it. Okay. Yeah. Well, and it has a larger expression even in our political moment. We've talked about that before. Yeah. Anyway, we appreciate your interest in the Theology Podcast, the subjects that we address in our shows, and, and we're always astounded by the support and the breadth of our audience, and uh, there are people who actually give us money to do this stuff, and we just enjoy ourselves, and, and the money that uh, folks uh, contribute to the Theology Podcast uh, through various means, some folks give to us through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and the membership that you can you can uh, enter into with that network and designate us as a as a beneficiary of your of your support. There's other pl ways to give. We just uh, we just don't know what to say except thank you. Yeah, thank you know you. we we are humbled by uh, all of it and uh, kind of astounded when we get the news. <laughs> but what we want you to know we're, we we don't actually take the funds uh, ourselves. The funds go all you know directly into building the website that we're. We're getting off the ground. Our new microphones, other things, paying the paying uh, you know people to actually produce the show and post it, and these things. So uh, all of that, all of those gifts are appreciated and are going to further the reach of the theology podcast. Anyway, we just wanted to say that as we wrapped up. All right. Well, thanks again, and we'll be uh, excited. We'll, we'll be with you again in a week, and uh, hopefully have another another show that you'll enjoy. Thanks a lot for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.